You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. It's good to see everybody here this morning, and if you're a guest with us or a first-time visitor, we're glad that you're here at Citizens. Welcome here. We are in the middle of a series going through the Gospel of Mark and looking at it verse by verse, really looking at every aspect of it and trying to glean as much as we can from the story and the text that we read each Sunday. And this Sunday, we're coming to Mark 6 and coming to what is probably one of the most famous stories out of the Gospels. Even if you talk to um, neighbors or people who don't go to church, sometimes if you watch TV or different things, you will see references to, you know, Jesus multiplying, multiplying bread and feeding all these people. It is a story that has captivated uh, society really for ever since it was told and ever since it happened. And it's one of the stories that actually shows up in all four Gospels. That's kind of rare. Not all of the stories that Jesus uh, was a part of or did was in all of the Gospels. But it really is, when it comes down to it, this story is about the power of God, the power of Christ, and we'll see it kind of lay out. But it's even more than that. It's also an announcement. And I, I don't know if you remember this. I was thinking yesterday of when I used to travel. It's been over two years since I've been on a plane or even in an airport, I think. But if you remember when you used to travel in, in airports, there would be like announcements in the background. And sometimes you would hear them. Or usually if you're going from gate to gate, you wouldn't hear them. You're wondering like who's actually hearing these announcements. It was usually like a last call or something. Some sort of call for, you know, John Doe or Jane Doe to get to their gate. Um, this passage is actually an announcement. And we can leave it kind of thinking that it's just about power and it's just about like, Jesus multiplying bread, but when we look a little bit closer at it, we see that there's actually an announcement being told here, and we're going to get to that announcement and see exactly what it is. But it begins with Jesus actually calling for rest, okay? So let's look again. If you have your Bible, let me encourage you to look yourself on your phone or at the pages if you have it with you, and we will go over this verse by verse here. So again, starting in verse 30 of chapter 6, it says this, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So the disciples, as we've been following along here, have been following Jesus. They have been trying to learn from him. They are seeing their rabbi, their teacher, out and about doing healings and teachings. And then he sent them out and he says, okay, now it's your turn to kind of do the work of preaching the kingdom of God. And so they go out and they do it. And they come back to Jesus here and they have experienced all kinds of things. They have, you know, like done teaching and they've done healing. They've, they've seen the spirit of God work. They've seen activity going on. And now they come back to Jesus and Jesus sees, man, they're tired. 
They are tired. They need some rest. And so Jesus says, okay, we need to go away to a desolate place. And, and this is not the first time we see Jesus actually himself, or now in this case, teaching the disciples to kind of take a step back, kind of draw back from the activity of the ministry and the work that they've done. But one thing we see here is that Jesus is not saying that it is bad to be, to be wrung out, to be spent for the kingdom of God. All the disciples are doing really is following Jesus' example. If you were with us in the beginning in, in Mark chapter 3, we see that the same thing came up for Jesus. Almost the same wording comes up where it says, you know, that he had no one to, no one to even like feed him. He was like out there and his family, if you remember, was worried about all that was going on. And so here the same thing is happening to the disciples. They are serving. They are out there and they are exhausted and tired. And it's actually a mark of followers of Christ to be spent for Christ's sake. To like exert energy, to, to give, to sacrifice so that others can actually experience the life-transforming message of Jesus. Galatians 5 verse 13, when Paul talks about kind of the result of the gospel. He says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. And now he's going to describe what that freedom is. So rather than like a law, rather than doing things to be pleased by God, he said, actually, here's what your relationship now looks like. You've been called to freedom. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says, this is actually what freedom looks like. Freedom looks like your ability now to freely serve one another. That's that first part in talking to like believers serving each other. But then even broader than that, he says, your freedom now allows you to go out and serve so that you can do these things. You can, you can spend your life serving people, not as a way to get pleasing activity done before God. So like you've, you've done something and you're like, man, God really is happy with me now. No, he says, actually, your freedom now is to be able to live a life free of being measured up before God. You're free now to serve. Apostle Paul says it like this in Philippians 2 of his own life. Verse 17, he says, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul says, if my life it's like an offering that you take, it's in a cup or it's in a bowl, and you pour it out. It says, if that's what God's calling is for my life, I gladly take it. Serving, serving others. It is a completely different mindset from what the world would see and understand uh, when they connect the word freedom to our lives. The ability to actually serve other people. And I don't know who comes to mind when you think of this idea of freedom to serve. Maybe there's someone that you know, uh, a believer that has just been faithfully serving for years. Or maybe someone that served you at different points in your life. For me, I often think of some of the missionaries that I know. And the choices that they make to serve and to do different things all for the sake of Christ. We have a friend who works in uh, Benin in West Africa who 
her ministry is working as a nurse and a caregiver for people who have HIV AIDS. Those people who are ostracized by their community. Most of the time they are disconnected. They are, you know, kicked out of their homes. And she is there. And I think of this often. She is there serving those people, loving them, caring for them, binding their wounds in many cases. And she's doing this of her own volition, serving them. Now, I don't even know, you know, talking to her, if she would call it a sacrifice because she loves Africa and it's basically home for her. But she is choosing to live away from Canada. She's choosing to live separate from her family who live here. She's choosing to live in a dangerous place and to put her own life at risk. She's choosing all of these things. And the Bible says that's actually freedom. It's freedom to be able to do that, to serve others, to spend your life for them. But we are human, and Jesus knows that, that we are weak and that we have limitations. I, I love uh, watching World War II documentaries. I love like kind of seeing and understanding what happened in the war and all this activity. And one of the things that really interests me was the, the advance of the German forces in World War II and how quickly it spread. And at one point, when things were pretty good for Germany, they were moving eastward and they were moving westward with like such speed that nobody had ever seen before. And they came up with a term and a name for it called Blitzkrieg. Maybe you've heard of that before. Where basically, you know, historically they would move forward as an army, kind of set up trenches, set themselves up, then move forward a little bit more. But the Germans came up with this idea some people say it was an idea. Some people thought it was just craziness, okay? But basically, they did this blitzkrieg where they just moved forward. They just kept going day after day. There was no, like, setting up shop. There was no making sure things were good. They were like, let's just keep driving and driving, and eventually we'll get through, and the chaos will kind of work in our favor. And it actually did. And the the way that they actually were able to do that, as historians kind of look back and try to make sense of it, how was an army able to go three, four, five days, you know, with just moving forward? What they discovered was that the Germans were actually pill-popping, okay? They were taking methamphetamines. They were supplying their soldiers with meth right on the front lines, which was like driving this army with like superhuman strength to do this blitzkrieg idea. And in the end, it didn't work, okay? It didn't work. They did eventually burn out. But what we see here in the text is that God and Jesus specifically knows that we are human. There is no, like, super drug waiting for us, okay? There's no, like, magic wand of, like, you are going to be, like, with perfect strength. Boom, just keep going. No, Jesus actually knows the reality of the disciples, and the reality of the human experience is that even when we spend ourselves in the freedom of Christ, we get tired. We get worn out. And maybe even more than that, we often can lose perspective. We need a reorientation for what our purpose is, for what our life is. And so Jesus here calls them to rest and calls them to reorientation, to, to step away. And just like he did earlier in Mark, we see that he calls them to 
separate themselves to what he calls in verse 32 to go to a desolate place. He's like, you guys need some reorientation. You need to understand again what it is that you're involved in. Because my guess is, and this is just a guess, my guess is that the disciples were actually like ready to go. These are like blue-collar fishermen, probably like verging on like workaholics, okay? They own their own businesses. So if they don't do the work, it's going to fail. And so they're just like, go, go, go. And I kind of think that was their mindset. And yet here Jesus says, it's time to actually stop. It's time to reorientate. It's time to go to a desolate place. And so within this texture, you have this image of what the Old Testament would call Sabbath. A time of stopping a time of ceasing the work, and more than that, a time of reorientating our thinking to who God is and what he's doing around us. In Exodus 31, when God is giving the law and the teachings and the Sabbath idea to the nation of Israel, it says this. Exodus 31 verse 12 says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are able to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of Sabbath, but one of the foundational ideas behind Sabbath is this idea of knowing in the pause, or as as Jesus, as Mark writes it down here, in the desolate place, not that we would just like cease from doing something. I think that's how a lot of us think of Sabbath. It's just like Sunday, you can't wash your car or you can't do certain things. It's more just viewed as like a limitation. But God's actual view is that it would be a time where you, where you would reset your thinking, where, we, where you would reorientate again your vision for your purpose in life, your purpose in the work that you're doing, all the busyness that is going on, the successes and the failures, that you would see that it is the Lord who actually sanctifies you. That that idea of it's the Lord who sets you apart. And that reorientation is meant to then give you strength in the midst of the work that you're doing. So that as Hebrew puts it, you can actually work, you can actually live the life that God has given you to live, and you can experience a rest in the midst of it. You can exert energy, and you can like pour yourself out. You can be like the disciples. You can have like all the busyness around you, and yet you regularly pause this kind of Sabbath reorientation, and you realize the strength that you have is actually from God. And the work that you're doing, the purpose that you have, is from God himself. So the question is, for all of us, do we practice Sabbath? Do we practice this moment of reorientation? Whether it's a a 10 minute of silence, or a one hour of scripture, or some sort of moment where God is able to actually penetrate into your heart and into your mind, and give you a moment of reorientation. And we've talked about this a lot in the Gospel of Mark because it keeps coming up, right? It's always there that God wants to like take us on this journey. He wants to show us what his purposes are around us. And in the middle of that, 
or to point our lives and our heart from orientation of Christ-centeredness so that we know who he is. And that's what Jesus is trying to do here. But what we discover really quickly is that even though Jesus had that plan in mind, it didn't actually come together like he had hoped. So look at verse 33. The need of the people just comes right before them. Verse 33 says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So it's almost kind of comical, right? They were like, okay, we're going somewhere else. Jesus is like, hop in the boat, boys. We're going to go to a desolate place. I got this spot where nobody is. And everybody's like looking from the shore and they're like, I think they're going right over there. And so they run and they beat them there. It's only comical when it's not happening to you, right? When it happens to you, you're like, you've got this perfect plan. You're like, I'm going to practice Sabbath now. You know, it's right before you. And then the noise comes along, whatever that noise is for you, or some sort of distraction. And yet, this is what is presented before them. And Jesus in that moment isn't like, okay, back in the boat. We can be faster than them. We can all row together. There's, you know, 13 of us. Let's go to the other side then. No, he actually sees the moment that's before him, and he embraces it. And he uses language, and Mark records that language, which is really important, and it's, it's there on purpose. He uses this language of sheep and shepherd. A language, words that are used over and over again in Scripture to remind us of who God is and who we are. He firstly describes the people here as sheep, as sheep without a shepherd. Now, in 2004, and it's happened a few times, there was like a story that was in the news about a sheep that was uh, lost out in the woods. And there was one in 2004, and his name was Shrek. And this is what he looked like after being lost in nature for six years. Okay, so a domesticated sheep, and he's like, got out of the pen, and they looked for him for six years hiding in caves and just eating scraps of this and that and somehow surviving. And this is what he looked like. And Shrek is not the only one. There's others that have come along and you can look them up on, you know, on Google or whatever and find them. But this, this big mangled mess. And the reason why I love this picture of Shrek is because the look on his face is kind of like, it's almost like the sheep is saying like, I got this, you know, like I'm okay Okay, I, I think I can handle it. And, and you can't even see his eyes. And if you, you know, read about Shrek or the others, you discover that most of them are like full of sores underneath all the wool. And they're, they're just struggling to survive from lack of food. And sometimes they'll like, you know, break a limb or maybe an, another animal. Besides the fact that he's supposed to be sheared. Okay, this is not a wild animal. This is supposed to be like sheared on a regular basis. And... Here he is as a big mess. And we're called sheep. And the reason we're called sheep is because, and, you know, I'd be the first to admit it, we're a lot like Shrek, actually. We kind of, like, think that we can pull it together. We think, we got that look sometimes, right, where we're like, we're fine. Everything's okay. I can't see because I'm covered with wool, but everything's going to be okay. I'm going to be fine. And we way overestimate our own ability. 
we way overestimate the things that we can handle. And sometimes it's even our own successes that set us up for that kind of failure. Like maybe we've even been successful in a lot of things that we've done. There's a lot of relationships that are really good. And there's maybe success in work or maybe there's success in school. There's all kinds of success around us. There are whole societies that are, that are built around this success that they're experiencing. And yet at some moment, and most of us have experienced it, at some point we discover that that's us actually that we're actually buried under like a big old mess. And that there is something that, that we're longing for that's deeper than the things that we can accomplish. There is something that is deeper, that is calling out to us, that is, you know, a, a longing or some sort of purpose or connection that, that the work is just not bringing, that the relationship is just not fulfilling. That the, the kids and the mortgage or the degree that I got is just not actually providing what I thought it would. And in the scripture here we see that Jesus actually knows that longing and he sees it. Jesus doesn't look out at the crowd and say, man, these guys aren't even supposed to be here. We we're supposed to be in a desolate place. It says actually that Jesus looks out to them. Look at verse 34. And he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. He sees them, and he doesn't just toss out the opportunity before him. He actually longs to be that total fulfillment for it. And we see it through the Old Testament, and I want to just read a few verses here to kind of see the progression of this idea of shepherd that is ultimately being fulfilled in the person of Jesus here. But it slowly goes through the Old Testament. If you go all the way back to Numbers, and I, I included the verses here so you don't have to flip through the pages, but you can. But Numbers chapter 27, verse 15, it says this, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. So you've got this Old Testament all the way back in Numbers. People reading that might be thinking, is that like the high priest? Is that Moses? What are we talking about here? The story goes on a little bit further. Now to 1 Kings 22, verse 17. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. Man, that's almost sounding like an echo now of what we're seeing here in the gospel. This kind of idea of sheep lost, needing shepherd. Then we come all the way to Ezekiel where it's getting clearer. In Ezekiel 34, he writes this, So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every hill, my sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search for or to seek for them. And then down in verse 11, he says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my seek sheep and will seek them out. So there we see it actually coming to its full message that actually the one who's going to do the seeking, the one who's the shepherd is actually God himself. God sees the need before him. He sees the lost sheep. And it's even in the Ezekiel passage there, it's broader than the nation of Israel. It's 
all people over the face of the earth. Jesus sees, and he is actually the shepherd who comes. And so here we see the, the longing and desire of people as they chase Jesus and the disciples, looking for who knows what, maybe looking for more miracles, maybe looking for the Messiah. But what Jesus sees actually is what's going on in real time in their hearts, is this longing to be with him. And they are not fully understanding what's actually happening before them and who he is. And our longing as well, the spiritual void that we experience, as Augustine put it, our heart is restless until it rests in you. That longing that we have is actually a longing for our shepherd, King. The shepherd who will come and will also, with compassion, find us lost sheep. Now, at different points in your life, and I don't know where you are, are all at today, at different points in your life, you want or want less a shepherd. Like, if we're honest, there's times where things are going good. We feel like we've got a handle on life around us. A shepherd, ah, I'm not sure if I need it that much. But what we discover is Jesus comes anyway. Because he knows there is a time when we will actually turn to him. He comes with compassion and a longing heart to provide for us what all of our hearts really long for, which is to know him and to be in relationship with him. Which brings us then to the miracle itself. To all that happens here before them. And let's just quickly read this again in verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. They're like, okay, Jesus, you nailed it. This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before them, before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. And the first thing we see here is that Jesus actually has eyes to see what's going on around him. The disciples are kind of reading what's happening. They're like, okay, it is four o'clock here, Jesus. We're pretty far away from the closest town. There's a lot of people here. We see a problem, and the problem is called dinner time, all right? And we need someone to solve this. And so Jesus looks at them, and he sees the problem that they're seeing. He's looking at the same thing that they're looking at, but they come to different conclusions. He says, we're not going to send them away. You solve the problem. You feed them. You do this right here. Figure out what is it going to look like. And so here before them then is this opportunity. And I don't know if you've had that experience. I'm sure that many of you had had an opportunity where suddenly before you is presented some sort of need. Before you is presented some sort of 
thing to do or to be a part of. And you don't know how that kind of landed in your lap. And maybe you're like the disciples. You're just like, you're pragmatic. You're just practical. It'd be better for them to go to a town. You know, go to a restaurant in some local towns and take care of it. What can I do? And yet, in many cases, God has actually put each of us in different circumstances. God has actually placed all of us in all kinds of different workplaces, all kinds of different neighborhoods and towns, specifically for opportunities like this, where God says, guess what? This is not somebody else's problem. This is not something else for someone else to do. You are there and you be a part of the solution. And God uses us. It's amazing. And we get to actually testify and tell others of how God used us. But in this story, we see that when the problem could have been pushed away, you know, disciples wanted to do that, Jesus actually comes to them and says, you provide. And so we see the story that Jesus provides in a magnificent way. And there's just a few things, and we'll close with this, a few things that we see in the provision here before us, in this amazing story. The first is that Jesus provides with a common provision. Okay, if you look at the story, Jesus is providing just simple bread and simple fish. This is Jesus, right? He could have provided anything. He could have invented the buffet right there, right? He's like, this is a, this is a new time. I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to invent the buffet. Or maybe he's like, I'm going to invent the pizza. You know, he's just like, on the spot, everybody's got pizza coming, you know, right down the aisles. But he doesn't. He actually uses something so common. He uses the, the few loaves of bread that are there, and he uses a couple of fish that are in the area. God regularly uses common, simple things to accomplish his purposes. But not only that, not only does he use a common thing, but it's also abundant. It is like superly abundant, more than he could ever think or ask. There is 5,000 people there. You see that in verse 44? There's 5,000 people. Some of the commentators think there probably would have been 5,000 women there as well. And then they said there might have been like five or maybe 10,000 kids there. So you're talking 20,000 people, okay? Just like an estimate. And for all those people, there's provision. And what does it say in verse 42? That they all ate and were satisfied. There is this like extreme abundance. And God is able to take this common thing, the simple bread and this fish, and he's able to abundantly multiply it. You know, when we started this church plant, um, there were so many questions about how it was going to move forward. And many of us still remember, like in the beginning, two years ago when the pandemic was started, we were like, should we start this or should we not? It's a pandemic. It's going to be over in like six weeks. So maybe we'll just like delay it, you know, for six weeks. And then once the pandemic's done, we'll just keep moving forward. And we were like, no, let's, let's just keep going forward. And one of the things that we kind of held on to or I held on to was partially this idea that God is able to like abundantly supply with like simple means. And part of that, I wish it was like exclusively just because I was like, I believe the Bible, you know, and I know that it's true. But partially it was even just like 
the research that I had done, okay? Like you can look up the research of church plants and you can see that the majority of church plants, their success is just based on the simplicity actually. Like the commonality of what's happening around them. A simple vision and people ignited by that vision is actually what kind of moves it forward and God continues to provide. God provides. And now here we are, almost two years later, and we're still here. We're still like being provided for. We're still in this building and and we don't know how long that's going to last. And we're kind of like, you know, the hammer is ready to drop whenever these people want their building back. But we just keep saying, okay, God provide. God, just provide. Can you do it? Can you keep providing? We're just going to keep stepping. We're just going to keep walking forward, but we need you to provide. And this is what the people are experiencing before them. And as you read this story, you almost get a sense of they don't even know what's happening. Everybody's just eating. They're just all being satisfied. There's nobody standing back and saying, this is amazing. Like 5,000 people are being fed. No, they're just like enjoying it and they're being satisfied in it because God is abundantly providing for them. But the last thing that Jesus is doing, and we're going to close with this, is he is revealing to them something deeper than just this provision. Because a lot of them had a longing for some sort of Messiah. They had some sort of image of who they thought this Messiah would be. And we all do this. We tend to think about Jesus as one who we would be familiar with. So I don't know how you picture him, but probably a lot of us picture him as like, he would fit in here in Elmira, you know? He's like white guy walking around Elmira. That's kind of how we picture him. And when you go to South America and you talk to South Americans, they picture him as like a brown guy walking around. Or you go to Africa, he's a black man walking around. Because we tend to put on Jesus our own framework, our own world around us. And in some ways that's good because he was a person who lived on this planet. But in other ways, we put onto Jesus something that he is not putting on himself. And the same thing is happening here for the nation of Israel. As these people are seeing Jesus, they are hoping for something. Most of them are hoping for some sort of a king. Some sort of a king who's going to rise up and like crush Caesar. And he's going to take over the land and they will be able to like ride in with him as like victors into Jerusalem. And Jesus here is saying, I'm a different kind of king. I'm a shepherd king. I'm a king who's going to serve. And ultimately, I'm going to serve right to the point of death. And so in this story, we actually see elements of a revealing for people to see that this is the Messiah they've been longing for. You see things like this lost sheep and the shepherd imagery. You see this desolate place and this unearned daily bread, even the dividing into groups of 50 and 100, and the collection of 12 baskets at the end. Listen, somebody should be sitting on the mountain, and as they're eating the bread and the fish, suddenly comes to mind, you know what this kind of reminds me of? This kind of reminds me of like the nation of Israel out in the wilderness, separated into different groupings, bread provided, It's almost like Jesus is Moses. And this imagination, this reimagining of a redeemer, of a leader, is actually meant to be revealed to the people. And in Hebrews, he kind of lays it out for us to see what Jesus was doing literally here. 
Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all, in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The writer of Hebrews is putting the pieces together, what we see Mark actually recording and what Jesus is living out, that Jesus is actually the better Moses. Jesus is the leader and the king that they're longing for. And the nation of Israel is missing it as it's happening right before them. And the disciples are sometimes grasping it and sometimes losing it. And the question for us to kind of end on is, have we grasped that? Do we see it? That Jesus is the king. And he's like no other king or leader that we've ever experienced or known. There's no one like him in history. He is a shepherd, a servant, a sacrificial leader who went right to the cross in sacrifice, but didn't stay there. Ended rising from the dead so that he conquered death, sin, hell, the devil, all for us, his people. And the question is, will we put our trust and our hope in our servant king? Or are we looking for something else? Let me ask you to stand as we close uh, this message here. And I want to do something maybe different. I'm going to close in a prayer, which is Psalm 23, but I'm going to put it on the screen there so you can look at it, okay? So you can keep your eyes open during prayer if you want, or you can just listen, okay? Where we see again this image of our shepherd king. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.